0: Hello there everybody and welcome to the first episode of 2022 of the Thinking Commercially podcast. I'm Ben Triggs and we are joined by the wonderful author and business expert, Chris Stokes. If you haven't read his books yet, get online, buy them, especially if your new year's resolution is all about learning more about business and understanding commercial awareness. If it is, you are in the right place. We're going to cover this month, finding balance in the economy as we emerge from the pandemic, non-fungible tokens or NFTs and the market forming around them, China's property market, and what's next for the Great British Pub. All of this and loads more in this episode. Hello there, Chris. How are you doing on this January morning?
1: Uh, great great to be with you ben and doing very well indeed and looking forward to this very much
0: yes and welcome back to all of our listeners it is the first episode of this year it does feel a little bit late in the year to start wishing people happy new year still i think that kind of time um has passed but hopefully you did have a really nice break and you're enjoying your january um plenty of resolutions i'm i'm sure any new year's resolutions for you chris
1: um not not particularly, um, just uh, want to keep attuned to what's happening in the business world, really.
0: That's the absolute dream for this podcast. Um, I must say I've got some definite, wants to uh, lose a bit of weight and go back to the gym, I'm sure I won't be the only one out there um, thinking that uh, we need a bit of a January um, trimming down um, after a a nice festive period. But yes, if your New Year's resolution is all about getting more knowledge of the business world, understanding commercial stories, you are in the right place. We're going to cover three stories where we're going to be focusing on stuff that's happening in the media at the moment in the business news but also looking at the wider context so it's great stuff to bring up in interviews or even just to sound knowledgeable as you're starting in the working world it's very much for students but also people in their early career and then we'll finish off with a nice final story um which is a bit more fun a bit more rounded to give you a little extra knowledge as well If you haven't already, uh, do check out our social media. We've got lots of stuff going on LinkedIn and do make sure you check out our Instagram as well. Lots of stuff around the episodes happen there. So please do follow them, like them, and also make sure that you're subscribing to our podcast on all the channels that you are using. So you get little notifications when we have our monthly episode. Are you ready to get started, Chris? Absolutely, Ben. Great stuff. Let's crack on with the first story. So the first story of this month is all about the government, business, the global economy, trying to find balance as we come out of the pandemic. You might be reading and a lot of business stories at the moment, a lot of economic stories are focusing in on whether interest rates are going to rise, um, high inflation, the jobs market. And looking at the impact or the lasting impact that the pandemic has had on the global economy. There's so much going on here and so many different moving parts. And actually, there's lots of different strategies that governments are taking. And as we start moving out from the restrictions that we've just had, it's just been announced at the time of recording that the UK is uh, is, is pulling back on its restrictions, Um, it does feel now that the economy is going to be the really big topic of how we move forward into 2022. So Chris, we're going to start off with inflation. We have covered this in previous episodes, but I think it's a really, really good topic as we start the new year and governments set out their kind of economic strategies. But what I really want to focus on is is this inflation point. Why is it that at the moment, inflation is very high, much higher than the traditional target rates in developed countries and whether this is a problem.
1: Uh, Inflation, as I'm I'm sure you all know from from previous podcasts, is when um, prices go up and the real value of money is eroded. So not not so much whether a pound is called a pound, but whether a pound buys you today what it bought you yesterday. Most economies expect inflation to run at about 2%. And certainly in the UK, the Bank of England is charged by the Chancellor with keeping inflation at at 2%. At the moment, inflation is expected this year to peak at about 7%. And economic commentators are divided about whether this inflation is uh, a short-term blip And afterwards, everything's going to go back to normal or whether it's going to be entrenched for the long term. And the the reason why this is significant is because over the last 20 odd years, the the great financial crisis of 2008 aside, we've really benefited as a global economy and a national economy from from two things, low inflation and low interest rates. And that's the ideal so at the moment, facing high inflation, if it becomes at all entrenched, is, is, is not good.
0: Amazing. That's uh, really clear. So just to give a bit of context behind this, in December, and I know Chris talked about 7% for this year, but over the last year, it was just over 5% inflation, meaning that at the starts in January 2021, uh, when you went to buy something, um, at the end of it, it will be 5% or just over 5% more expensive. One thing that has been happening at the same time is there's been a lot of vacancies. You might have seen on the news uh, very recently that actually were at a record high level of vacancies that has caused wages to inflate, so wages to rise as well. And actually, over the last year, at the, very much at the moment, wage rises are just under 4%, inflation's just over 5%. So inflation is going quicker than wage rises. But actually, for most of 2021, those were fairly level, um, if not wages actually rising a little quicker than inflation. So if the wage rises are there, therefore people have more money in their pockets, and then they can afford the extra hikes in terms of prices for food, gas, whatever it is, clothes and stuff like that. Is that a major problem?
1: Oh, on the face of it, um, it doesn't look as if it's a major problem. But when you drill down, it is. You're absolutely right to say, Ben, that, that when, when employers are finding it hard to fill vacancies, it effectively means that the bargaining power has shifted to employees because they can demand to be paid more to stay where they are or in order to go to another job they can expect that the new employer to 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 pay them more but not everybody's wages increase at the same rate in in fact mm-hmm. I, i'd say for the bulk of people in employment they 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 don't increase at, at the same rate and of course there are uh, sectors of society where they don't increase much at all: uh, people on fixed incomes, pe- people on on benefits. And I think what's interesting about the, this inflation, this type of inflation, because I didn't realise until recently there are different types of inflation. I just thought it was it was all one type, but but it isn't. Um, that there, there are at least two types. What, one is if I can put it in these non-economic terms, internal inflation, internal to the UK, it's demand-driven. So after the pandemic, people have got a lot of money they haven't been spending because they haven't been going out, and so they go out and spend it, uh, and that is demand-driven, and that causes prices to rise because the supply isn't there to meet demand. And we know that during the pandemic, a lot of companies – Uh, stop producing as much as they normally would, because they didn't think the demand would would be there. And that's why in the semiconductor industry, there's a great shortage of chips. But there's another type of inflation, which is kind of external to the UK. And economists use terms like exogenous shocks, by which they mean factors outside the UK economy. And, And one of these is the massive increase in energy prices from around the world. And, and that is going to affect people a great deal because you energy is is a kind of non-discretionary expense. You you need it to, to, to light your home, to cook, to keep yourself warm, to have hot water. You 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 need to spend that money. And energy prices have gone absolutely through the roof. So one of the things that UK economists I think are concerned about, whether the UK is going to be hit by a kind of wave of external exogenous inflation over which we have very little control.
0: Amazing. the thing is with um, gas prices, elect- electricity prices, we possibly always think about it in our own homes, like you pay your kind of gas meter or, or, or your gas bills, elect- electricity bills. However, businesses, Especially smaller businesses that are seeing their prices uh, for bills significantly rise are struggling to make kind of profits. And often businesses will have big warehouses, big uh, venues, whatever it might be that take a lot of, um, a lot of energy to, to heat or, 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 or to light up. So it does have that big impact on the business world, not just the consumer. And of course, if the consumer is paying higher bills, they possibly aren't going out there and buying a a new telly. They aren't going out to the pub uh, quite as often. And so it has that kind of knock-on effect across the economy. Um, Going back to something that you said in the first question, Chris, is all about interest rates. So the, the Bank of England, as we discussed, sort of sets the base level interest rate. Um, It has been at historic low levels of 0.1% last year. And then in December, it it got raised, a small raise to uh, 0.25%. The kind of uh, idea is, is that to control inflation, you either raise taxes, or you uh, raise interest rates. Could you talk a little bit about this? But I know we've covered that in previous episodes. But what I really want to talk about is why are governments at the moment quite hesitant to raise interest rates?
1: It's a really good question. And and the UK government at the moment is also poised to, to raise taxes in terms of uh, national insurance contributions. And you're, you're absolutely right. The traditional way to control inflation is to stop people spending as much how do you do that? You increase their taxes, so they've got less disposable income. You increase the cost of borrowing so they're less likely to, to, to borrow as much. So that they, those are the traditional controls. Raising taxes is unpopular, and the government certainly has re- received a certain uh, quite a lot of flack uh, for uh, thinking of raising taxes at, at the moment. The trouble with raising interest rates is that um, if you raise interest rates, borrowing for business, uh, is is a necessary way of raising cash. It's it's businesses that that aren't uh, extravagant users of money still borrow as a matter of course. For, for example, to 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 bridge the, their cash flow gaps. So businesses generally borrow. Um, it, uh, a business that doesn't borrow is unusual. Businesses that do borrow that 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 that's the norm. So. At the moment, if you've got businesses worrying about energy prices, a shortage of workers, interest rates likely to go up, they're not going to be investing and governments want businesses to invest, to expand and, and, and to remain competitive. And the, the global economy and the UK is included in this. We, we suffer at the moment from very low growth. Economies have to grow to be healthy. And for the last 10, 15 years, um, major economies, China aside, have not been growing that quickly. And so the concern is that if interest rates go up at a point when the economy is still recovering from the great financial crash with all of the quantitative easing over the last 10 or so years, any increase in interest rates will will Choke off economic activity, and and the, the way this was expressed to me by by a banker was really interesting because the banker said to me, "You may think that interest rates going from one to two percent isn't a big deal, but for borrowers, and that's business borrowers as well as uh, people borrowing to fund their home, that means they're in that their interest payments have doubled. So when you're going up from a low base, although these small increases, interest rates don't seem to be very much in percentage terms. In terms of what uh, borrowers actually pay, it can be quite devastating.
0: Absolutely. It definitely feels like a time that um, good economic management is absolute paramount. And um, definitely a time where um, there's lots of interest in, in, in these kind of stories and looking at this kind of a whole economic Sphere, So really understanding it from a commercial awareness point of view, um, as it will impact businesses across sectors that you're going to be applying for. My final question on this story is, Chris, because a lot of people will be looking for jobs right now, graduate jobs. Um, As discussed previously on this story, job vacancies are at a record high. I think there are 1.24 million uh, vacancies uh, announced a couple of uh, days ago. Restrictions um, look like they're about to be lifted. Is this a good time to be a job searcher?
1: Well, it's it's a really good question, and you know me, Ben. I, I like to uh, strike a note of optimism. I I actually think, speaking generally, that it's harder to get a job these days than when when I was the age of our listeners. Um, I I think it's just generally harder. You've 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 got to show great proactivity. You've got to have done a lot of things outside your studies to show that uh, you're interested in in the particular sector you're aiming at. And a lot of these jobs that are available are not necessarily jobs that everybody out there will feel will advance them in their chosen career. And of course, on top of that, you've got the fact that post-pandemic, there are likely to be more recent graduates looking for jobs because a lot of students have postponed looking for a job because of the pandemic, they've gone on to do a postgraduate course for a year or so. So there will be more job seekers out there. So what I would say is that yes, on the one hand, as the economy gets back to normal, businesses will take on more workers. So that's a reason to be optimistic. But on the other hand, if you find you keep on getting knocked back, don't give up hope. Because I I think that at the moment it is more difficult than it otherwise would be. So what I would suggest is just persevere because if you know what it is you want to do and you've you've shown um, enough interest in doing it and you can speak knowledgeably about it, including being commercially aware, you will ultimately get the job that you want. But if for the time being, you feel that it's hard, just remember you're not alone. So I I would say that uh, on the one hand, it's always a good time to be a job seeker. On the other hand, if you yourself encounter challenges and difficulties at the moment, don't worry, it's not your fault.
0: Sounds like a very motivating, uplifting uh, end to this uh, first topic this month. So the second story of this month's episode is all about NFTs, or what are known as non-fungible tokens. You might have heard of it if you're into kind of blockchain, cryptocurrency, uh, new markets. You uh, might be very interested in the story over the last few weeks. Um, Basically, these are kind of digital forms of art or or, or digital things um, which can be or have recently been sold, bought, um, at different auctions or to highest bidders so a very uh, good example of that was Jack Dorsey who's the founder of Twitter sold his um, first tweet to someone for just under uh, three million dollars um, but they can involve anything they can be gifts they can be um, pieces of art famous memes all of those sort of things Um, we don't want to chat too much about the kind of celebrities that are kind of getting involved in all of this at the moment and buying and selling them. Um, But I do think it forms an interesting story about how um, markets are formed, especially in the new age, and what it actually means being a a market for something and um, how it goes from a few people trading it all the way to a a very common thing being traded um, by people like you and me. So, my first question is for you, Chris, is um, what's your thoughts on NFTs and why do you think they're becoming so popular as an investment item?
1: Well, oh, very, very interesting question. And um, I, I think the, from what we've seen so far, the greatest use is going to come out of the the art market. And I think that's because... Um, In art, what is valued is, and grammarians are going to complain about my use of this word, it's uniqueness. What what art buyers are looking for is something that is unique. And the thing about uh, NFTs is that because they come out of blockchain, that is the one thing that you are guaranteed. It's the uniqueness. Because the way I try to understand this stuff is by thinking that uh, a cryptocurrency is basically a five pound note, but with its history embedded in it. So you and I, when we go into a shop and spend a five pound note, it, and I, I admit we don't do that very much these days because everything's done on, on debit cards, but in the old days when you actually used uh, real money, Five pound notes were were called fungible. They, they were fungible because if you lent somebody a five-pound note, they paid you back with a five-pound note. You didn't care whether the five-pound note you got back was the same. What you cared about was the value. So what one of the one of the things economists say about currencies is that they're fungible. You can use one for another. The whole point about these tokens is they're non-fungible. You can't swap one for another because they have their history the transaction history embedded in them, which, of course, is what gives them that greater security, uh, 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 especially in, in a virtual world. So I think we're seeing them emerge principally in the arts market because that's where uniqueness is particularly prized.
0: Great stuff. Thanks for that, Chris. Really interesting to hear your thoughts on it. So stepping back, we're talking about a market for them. What does that actually mean? Because you hear people talk about the markets and and things like that. But I think a lot of people sometimes sort of get confused on what that actually tangibly involves.
1: Well, I I remember when I first became a financial journalist, I I went off to see somebody at a major bank who had the wonderful title of head of financial engineering And um, I basically went along to get a two-hour tutorial from him because bankers, you know, they talk to journalists because you're going to write about them. And he said to me, what is the market? And he um, answered his own question by just clicking his fingers, just clicked his fingers. And basically what he said is the market is the most recent deal. So uh, it's very difficult to get one's head around what a market is. The way I think about it is, a car boot sale is a market. It's a place where people go to buy and sell stuff. And translating that into the financial market, certainly in in the old days, um, you would get what were called curb markets. So you'd have the stock exchange in a formal building, lots of regulations, and then you'd get people hovering outside on the pavement buying and selling stuff, some of which you could buy and sell in the stock exchange. and these these are called curb markets. So in a sense, a market is simply where or when a buyer and a seller come together and then they, they take on a formality and they get more regulated. And just to try to kind of make sense of this, um, when I was a financial journalist, one of the most interesting developments was with whether, derivatives whether as in is it raining or is it sunny and the idea was that there was risk there that you could transfer so who could be interested in a weather derivative let's say I'm a travel company and what I want to or, or an event company or running venues like like a um, uh, big outdoor uh festivals, what I worry about is bad weather, I want to insure against it. One way is to take out insurance. Another would be to buy a weather derivative that pays out if it rains. And then you think, well, who would be on the other side of that trade? Who would be willing to sell a weather derivative? Or if if they're looking for derivatives in the summer, who would look for a derivative in the winter? And we've just been talking about energy companies, And an energy company in the winter wants the winter to be severe so that more consumers buy more energy. So they want to basically ensure against a mild winter. So you've actually there got the possibility of a market because you've got people who want it to be sunny in the summer and people who want it to be cold in the winter, and they can enter into deals with each other that offset those risks then all you need is a place where they can do this. And uh, in the days I'm talking about, believe it or not, the internet had only just started. And these weather exchanges were some of the first electronic exchanges, where people did these things over the web and and by by email. And nowadays, because of the dominance of social media and, and the internet, it is much easier for people to create these virtual markets, which don't have actually have a location as such, but they are, if you like, platforms where people can come and buy and sell.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting, really interesting to hear that bit of uh, history there, um, Chris, and uh, getting a bit of understanding from that example. I really want to touch on a little bit about this idea of markets coming to existence and becoming a place where regular people, non-investors, specialists, non-businesses can trade and access. So I think the classic example is cryptocurrency because a few years back, everyone was saying definitely get and buy this, or a few people were saying definitely go and buy buy this. But actually, one of the criticisms of um, Bitcoin, let's say, was that it was quite difficult to buy and sell it, or there were challenges to to, to buy and sell it. Whereas now, with um, apps and businesses like Coinbase, it's remarkably easy to you know download an app and you can get going pretty much straight away with. A few details um, plugged in. So, what's the process of markets going from investors buying and selling, like you talked about, to people like you and me being able to trade on, let's say, apps or you know, before kind of apps, sort of just just
1: generally. Well, I, I suppose the first question is who who would who would buy this stuff at the outset, and I think you've really got two types of people. You've got out and out speculators who may not themselves have much money, but they see this as a way of making a lot of money. And they're going to get in and out of the market as quickly as possible. And then you've got people who've actually got a lot of money, high net worth investors, um, institutions, and they see any emerging asset class as a way of diversifying their holdings. So, for example, there there was an investment management company that took a stake in Bitcoin just, and, and they said this to investors, we're doing this, just to see what it's like. And and they put in about 1% of their assets. And actually over the next six months, it went up hugely and in the end they sold because they said, we've made so much money out of this investment, but we don't, we're not sure it's there for the long-term. So they they went into the market and came out of the market. And so initially what you get is a a lot of um, churn, a lot of people coming in and, and leaving the market. And one of the problems with that is you get a lot of volatility. So I think it was Tesla who said at one point that they would accept uh, cryptocurrencies in payment for, for, for their cars. But I think they withdrew that offer because the price of cryptocurrencies went up and down so much. The volatility was so great that you, you wouldn't know the value of what you were being given if you sold a car for crypto. Uh, and 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 at the same time, you wouldn't know what, what price in crypto to put on a car. So and until markets stabilize, they become very difficult for if you like, ordinary people to, to move into with any great de- degree of confidence. And one of the issues here is, is there an underlying use for the assets? So one of the, 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 the great bubbles in, in financial history was the the tulip market in the 17th and 18th centuries in, in, in the Netherlands. And there's only a limit to the number of tulips you can plant for which people will be prepared to pay. And so with crypto, you've got to ask yourself, well, what ultimately is, is the, 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 the market here? Because until crypto is uh, uh, both a store of value and something that can be used uh, as an exchange mechanism in a transaction, it's really searching for a purpose, which is why circling back to where we started, non-fungible tokens are are an interesting use of this technology. And if more uses emerge, as I was reading recently, for example, I don't really understand this, but I was reading recently that you can use crypto to incentivize the internet of things to use particular services. So, and this is all done automatically by by computer. So you can, uh, the, the way I understood this was you can encourage a fridge to order more groceries on behalf of its owner if there is a special offer that rewards it in crypto. Now, I don't begin to understand this, but I think that's a very interesting, completely automated use of what is effectively a virtual currency. And the more there are uses like this, which have real application, the more the currency itself will gain currency.
0: Yeah, that's uh, fascinating stuff. I hope you're finding it as fascinating at home when you're listening to this as well. Um, just to tie it off on the NFT's um, point, so um, just to give a bit of context around it, the market surpassed uh, $25 billion in 2021. But there is a problem with fraud at the moment in these kind of markets these are kind of peer-to-peer trading um one of them's open sea binance is, is is another one um but i think one platform flags ninety thousand potential nft fakes in a in a three-month period to show how how rife it is in in these markets and i think that becomes kind of the development of it that um it, st- it starts and there's but, and it's potentially open to, you know, fraudulent activity. And as it becomes more formalized, um, like at the moment, Coinbase, who we mentioned recently, have announced a partnership with MasterCard to set up a NFT marketplace. And all of a sudden it becomes better regulated, um, authorities understand it better, understand what's going on. However, a word of warning, make sure if you are investing in all of these things, um, due diligence is really important. And Chris, do you have anything to say on that?
1: Yes, really good point about at what point do regulators become involved. And I think they become involved when they see a market that's, that's very hot and the risk of, of professional fraudsters and scammers moving in, um, and people being ripped off. And the way I look at regulation, when, when you try to peel away all of the actual uh, law and rules around it, regulators really have two jobs. Well, one is that to stop the public being ripped off. And secondly, to stop institutions from ripping off the public, but also from doing themselves damage and damaging the financial plumbing of the financial markets by taking on risks that they shouldn't take on. And so as soon as regulators see um, this sort of hotspot activity, that's when they start to get involved. But interestingly uh, interestingly for me as an ex-lawyer, Geoffrey Voss, who's the master of the roles, uh, uh, said recently, lawyers in the very near future are going to have to be very conversant with, with crypto and blockchain, because there are going to be all sorts of legal issues that arise. And it's no good not understanding this stuff. So I thought it was very interesting that somebody as august as the master of the role should be saying that. And the, 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 the last thing I'll say is, um, don't forget that in the old wild west, in the times of the gold rush, the people who made the money were the people who were selling the shovels.
0: It's a really good way to to end this story, uh, there, Chris. Uh, it sounds like there might be a little bit of uh, extra reading, especially if you're thinking of law, even into kind of you know banking or something like that. Um, but generally across different industries, there's going to be so many applications. So uh, do get a working knowledge ready for any interviews or starting in the working world. But for now, let's move on to our third story. The third story of This month's episode is all about China's property market. Um, If you've been following the business news over the last six to 12 months, um, you might have heard of a company called Evergrande, uh, which is a big Chinese property company. And the reason why you might have heard of it is because they have amassed a debt which is worth $300 billion and are struggling to make the payments on it so much so that there's been a lot of talk that they are about to go out of business and they have such a vast array of properties that they're currently working on um but it also suggests a kind of wider problem in the housing market in 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 china which uh which uh, is definitely kind of a focus for not just their economy, but for the global economy as well. I think I read an article when I was doing a bit of research for this um, from a few months ago, this was, that people were describing it as China's layman's moment um, with reference to the Lehman Brothers uh, collapsing um, in the sort of financial crash of sort of 2007, 2008. Um, But the article going on to suggest it was quite different um, from that, but maybe there were a few initial sort of similarities. So yeah, so we want to give you a bit of an understanding. It might be something you haven't really looked at as, as much as not as much on the doorstep as some of the other stories that we, we might cover. So Chris, what I want to ask you first is what is actually happening in China's property market?
1: Well, it's really interesting this, Ben, because just to put it in context, China is the second largest economy in the world, but it's likely to overtake the States, which is the largest, and its rate of growth. We were talking earlier about how growth, economic growth is plateauing in, in uh, Western developed economies and, and is running at one, two, three percent a year. Well, in China, gro- growth has been running at between five and 10 percent for the last 10 to 20 years. And what this means is that uh, China is not only a massive producer of goods that are sold around the world, but it's, it's also a big buyer of raw materials, of commodities, and Australia, for example, which is an economy that is driven by by commodity uh, production, traditionally uh, exported its output to China and is now embroiled in a a trade dispute with China. And so the question this raises is, what are all of these commodities uh, used for? So, for example, iron ore... Uh, a major commodity. Its price has halved over the last year because the construction of property in, in China has really taken a hit. And when you look at the stats, they're really quite amazing. 90% of households in China own a property, not necessarily the property that they're occupying. And given the huge amount of residential property that's been built by companies like Evergrande, of those properties remain empty, and many have been bought for speculative reasons. This happened in Canary Wharf when it was under construction 20, 30 years ago. People would, would buy off plan in order, once the flat had been sold, to flip it, to sell it for a speculative profit. And that's been happening in the Chinese residential property market, which is why there are an awful lot of big property developers, of which Evergrande is one of the largest, and 300 billion of debt is is absolutely colossal. To put it in proportions that we might understand, the market value of a Sainsbury's or a Tesco is between five and ten billion sterling. So 300 billion of debt is absolutely enormous, and just under 20 billion of that is held in offshore bonds by overseas investors. So I think think the reason why to maintain your commercial awareness, you need to keep an eye on what's happening there is firstly, what is happening within the Chinese domestic economy, since China is itself such an, an engine room of the global economy. But secondly, how this could spill out into the wider world and those countries that are Quite closely linked to the Chinese economy like Australia, but also institutional investors around the world who are holding this debt. And and, and just again, to put this in in context, um, in the past, uh, Western luxury goods manufacturers like LVMH and Burberry, their biggest markets have been in China. And when China, the Chinese government started clamping down on on the, the giving of luxury goods as part of doing business, those companies share prices took a major hit. So uh, although what happens in China may seem quite remote to us, the financial and economic implications are really very direct.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And with Evergrande, my understanding of this is that in trying to be the the biggest, in trying to be one of the largest Chinese companies, let alone in in the property market, um, they overstretched themselves. And like with everything, if the value of property continued to rise, it would have been fine, but the value of property hasn't continued to rise. Demand has fallen, and they are now doing kind of cut price deals just to get some cash in the door. And when a business is in in a time where they just have to get cash in the door, um, profitability takes a massive, massive hit, and the long-term sustainability takes a massive, massive hit. And it's something that's kind of happened here in this example. Chris, you mentioned in what you were talking about just then that there's lots of outputs or potential problems for the global economy. Could you give a small digest of those key areas just so
1: our listeners could understand... We see just going back to one things that people have been talking about a lot recently so supply chain problems global supply chain problems what do they mean by that well actually what they mean is getting goods from China where an awful lot of things are manufactured to Western markets by sea and you remember the uh, the, the tanker that got, that got stuck in the Suez Canal and how that disrupted Christmas supplies to to Western businesses and Uh, I might've used this example before because I was really struck by it. Uh, Some months ago, I was listening to an interview with somebody who ran a garden center um, in in somewhere like Shropshire. And um, they they said that they were unable to sell uh, garden furniture chairs um, over the summer because um, their supplies had been disrupted. And uh, when they were asked why they said, well, the, the wood is grown in Scandinavia and then it goes to China for treatment, and then it is shipped back to Europe to be turned into chairs. And I was just thinking, this is—I thought this is a ludicrous supply chain. I mean, you're sending stuff twice halfway around the world just to get it treated to turn it into garden furniture. But what it—what I think it showed was that supply chains are very. Um, when you uh, aggregate them, they're very jumbled, you know. And if a lot of goods that the world consumes are coming from China, then supply chain problems are principally about getting those goods from China to the rest of the world. So that that is how how crucial it is. And and just Ben going back to something else you were saying about Evergrande, property businesses are particularly prone to cash flow crises because. One of the problems they have is you need a lot of money to, to, to buy a site and then to build something on it before you're in a position to sell anything, to sell the flats that are in the building that, that you built. So you've got a massive cash flow gap that you have to fill by borrowing. Now, as you said, when property values are going up, it's great because the building that, that, that you're constructing is itself going up in value. So you can borrow more on it as soon as underlying property values start to go down, your whole borrowing starts to unravel because banks start looking at the security for the loan and the underlying security, the property is going down in value. So you can actually borrow less on the base of it and banks start to get anxious and they want to accelerate their loans and get repaid before the underlying security goes down much more in value. So The property business in particular is very sensitive to interest rates, which we were talking about before, and also to property values just just for, for their own well-being. And that's because structurally, a property business needs to borrow a lot of money in order to function at all.
0: Really good there, Chris. Really interesting to hear about that. What I want to understand is if we go back to the property market specifically... Is this a problem that will be replicated across the world? As in, is, are there problems in other property markets that are the same as in China? Or is the main problem for the, the world is the, the knock-on effect
1: that you've talked about? My, my own view, and it is only a personal view, is that this is limited. It's the knock-on effect to, uh, in particular, institution investors that hold... Uh, indebted Chinese company uh, securities like, like bonds. But it's a good note of caution, you sound, because the financial crisis of 2008 was caused by a decline in the U.S. residential property market at a time when, because the market had been going up uh, spectacularly and interest rates were low, people who couldn't afford mortgages were being encouraged to buy houses but, but as I say, they frankly couldn't afford. And when that started to unravel, it wasn't contained within the States. It spilled out into the rest of the world. So I think one thing to watch with this is the extent to which it might spill out into the rest of the world and move from the, the one category of isolated property market within China to um, could this become a structural issue for global property markets generally? Because it is true the residential property around the world has been going up enormously in value. And one reason for that, just to tie it all together, is because with interest rates so low and with historically inflation being so low, investors have put money into other assets to get some sort of a return. And property is one of the ones that they put money into, which has driven up prices
0: Really fantastic stuff. Uh, Hopefully that's helped with your commercial awareness. Hopefully it's a new interesting story that you might have not heard of before, but we're going to leave it there. So the final and more fun business story that we're going to cover this episode is all about the Great British Pub and looking at the industry around it. It feels like a slightly strange story for me to be doing in the midst of a dry January that I'm uh, trying to complete over the next few weeks. But I think it is quite an important story to to talk about and look at, because there has been a lot of stories about how pubs, restaurants, the hospitality industry has been hit by the pandemic. Obviously, with restrictions going, there's now an opportunity um, for people to get back out there. Um, But... It's not just the pandemic that has been um, affecting pub trade. And in years past, there's been stories of uh, pubs shutting. There's quite a few shut in 2020 and 2021 for obvious reasons. But even before that, the number of kind of classic pubs or what you might think of as the old school pub uh, have been shutting down. There's been less of them. Um, So, Chris, what I want to chat to you um, about is when we talk about the British pub, we all have a, an idea in our head and that might be kind of fruit machines back in the day, you know, people propping up the bar, um, maybe sport on the, the, the TVs, um, however you kind of vision it at, at home. But there are nuances in the industry. And I know you wanted to talk a little bit about how the industry works and a little bit about the businesses, especially the chains involved.
1: Yes, I, I, I love this story because um, those of you who've heard me drone on about commercial weather before will know that I, I believe it starts with just looking around you. So when you go to the pub, look around you and think to yourself, what is the basis of this business? And I, I just want to use two examples which are very contrasting. Um, one you'll be very familiar with, Weatherspoon, started by Tim Martin, who's who still runs the business, named it after a teacher of his in New Zealand who said he'd never make anything of his life. Um, Now, what he has done is is go for a very specific area of the market. Um, He he goes for volume, low prices, he appeals to students, he appeals to those on on low and and fixed incomes. And interestingly, he, rather like owners of football clubs, realized uh, a while ago that what he owned was a whole lot of venues that were used principally in the evening and also at lunchtime. And he realized that to make the most of his business, he had to maximize the use of those venues, get more people in more often. And that's when Weatherspoon started offering breakfasts. And you you, you probably know that he's quite strict about things like whether he has distracting music and so on in his pubs because he wants them to be social places where people gather and he spends his time going around the individual pubs, trying them out and talking to punters to find out what it is that they want and I think at the back of his mind what he's thinking is how can I get greater use out of these venues how can i how can I keep them open? Uh, 24-7 and get get them used for different things. So uh, he's aiming very much at a particular part of the market. Now, contrast that with Young's. And they used to own the Ram Brewery in Wandsworth, which is why the logo is is the, 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 the head of a Ram they don't actually brew their own beer anymore. That's now done for them by Marston's. And what they decided a while ago was that they were going to turn their pubs into pubs, focusing on food, and they would uh, focus on basically rich areas of the country, so London and the home counties. And what they've been thinking of doing is, is adding high-value niche extras, for example, hotel rooms for the night. So what I think is very interesting is that you can get a basic business Serving beer to people, and yet you can get great business minds thinking of of how you can provide a USP, a unique sales proposition, a different offering uh, from 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 other competitors.
0: Yep, great stuff there, Chris. Really interesting to hear a story about things that we all know about, and we can apply it to the business world. I was reading the other day and actually, it's a little bit of an older article Um, and it was a guardian headline, I think from about 2018, but it was pre-pandemic. And the headline was millennials haven't killed pubs, pubs just haven't kept up. And the idea being is with all business, any sector businesses need to keep adapting and they need to be always one step ahead. Do you think Chris, that the pub is an example of an industry that has been slow to adapt to new trends? And this is why, We're seeing a number of pubs shutting down and not operating at the moment.
1: It's a really good question. And I think when you're a business owner, uh, you worry about lots of things. And and obviously strategy, which is what this is about, is is one of the principal ones. Sometimes... The general economic trends are against you. You know, if people are not going to pubs as much as they were, then you're in an industry that's in decline. And whatever you do, you can't escape that. But when you think about it with pubs, um, when uh, years and years ago, quite rightly, the government stopped uh, drinking and driving, Pubs that relied on a wide catchment area, people coming by car, they found that they had to focus more locally because they they lost that business. And in a sense, they, they are part of the high street debate. What is it that is going to get us out there in the high street and congregating? And I think people like Tim Martin, they do spend a lot of time thinking about what, what is it that we need to do to encourage people to get together. And so two small ways in which pubs have adapted. um, uh, One of the things that uh, musicians complain about these days is there's there's no place to play. And uh, so one of the things that pubs have have been doing is providing music venues for up and coming bands to actually have a local place that they they can play. Another thing that they've been doing is putting on comedy clubs so again, with both both music and comedy, yeah, you can you can experience it at home, but if you want the real vibe, you've got to be there, and that's why I think imaginative pubs are almost moving away from the old "We're here to sell you beer," and they're moving towards "We're here to provide a venue where you can have an experience that you wouldn't have uh, sitting at home," uh, and and that's why I think we're seeing a move towards. Uh, non and low alcoholic drink sales in pubs. Whereas I can remember a time when, when I went to a pub and asked for a non-alcoholic beer and the bartender just said to me, what's the point of that, you know? So I certainly wasn't gonna get a non-alcoholic beer there. Whereas I think nowadays, you know, and Germany is the lead in this, German non-alcoholic beers are absolutely fantastic. So that, that I think offering non-alcoholic beverages, offering tea and coffee, being a place where people go to uh, for coffee mornings, not just to go traditionally to drink. These are ways in which I think imaginative pub owners are thinking.
0: And they absolutely need to be doing that because um, the generation that a lot of our listeners, so you guys um, are part of the current 18 to 24s, there is a huge drop in um, alcohol consumed. Um, a lot of more people are, um, are, are not drinking compared to millennials or, or even people before that. Um, And the no low, I think it's the no low category, uh, the no, uh, no alcohol, low um, alcohol uh, drinks grew by about 70 percent, 17 percent in 2021. Um, And given it was a year where people um, possibly weren't going out quite as much, um, still seeing that growth. And I'm sure that'd be a a kind of trend that continues as well to to tie off uh, this story. um, I just wanted to mention one thing. we always talk, and everyone talks about make sure you read a breadth of uh, different um, media sources and, and and stuff like that. And of course, absolutely uh, do that. But if you want something that is completely out there and completely different, head into a Weatherspoons and uh, find a copy of their magazine. It is very much a very different take on um, a lot of the a lot of the current affairs. I'm not sure uh, maybe you should bring it up in all of your interviews, um, but definitely gives you a, a breadth. of of opinion across across the board. Finally, Chris, um, you've got a birthday coming up this weekend. So will you be in one of these great British um, pubs um, to have a few sharpeners for your birthday?
1: Well, well, to to, to answer that, and and also to tie it into Weatherspoons. if you do look at the magazine, which I have looked at, because I find Weatherspoons a very interesting commercial awareness study. Well, one of the the interesting things they've done is they have theme nights. So every you could basically eat in, weather, in weather spoons every night because every night is a different theme: a curry night, a fish night, and 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 so on. And the other thing that is interesting, and you wouldn't think Tim Martin would do this, they also they they. Um, I think they have a, a partnership with cameras. So so they do introduce new drinks. And so, in a sense, I know this sounds unlikely, but going to Weatherspoons is a way in which you can actually experience new types of drink that you might not otherwise have encountered. So who knows? I might end up in a Weatherspoons again.
0: <laughs> well, excellent. Well, a massive happy birthday for you for for this weekend. And thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We're gonna leave it there for this story. And thank you, Chris, for joining us again for this episode. What a fantastic way to kick off 2022. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you found it useful and do check out our Instagram and LinkedIn for all the great content around the stories we've covered this month. Finally, if you do want to ask a question, please get in touch with me, ben.triggs at brightnetwork.co.uk or message us on the LinkedIn group or Instagram and you'll have your question read out on next month's episode. Until then, it's bye from me.